You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Hello, yoga teacher. Today, I have the honor and delight to share a conversation with Judith Hansen Lassiter. If you usually multitask while you listen to podcasts, I recommend that you set some time aside to give this episode your full attention. Judith's wisdom and presence will draw you into an almost meditative state if you let it. Now, if that's not realistic right now, go ahead and listen anyway, because I think this is probably an episode you'll want to come back to again and again. A quick intro of Judith, just in case you're not familiar with her work. Judith Hansen Lassiter, PhD, is a physical therapist and yoga therapist. She is a founder of Yoga Journal Magazine and president emeritus of the California Yoga Teachers Association. She's the author of 11 books on yoga and related topics, the newest of which is Teaching Yoga with Intention, The Essential Guide to Skillful Hands-On Assists and Verbal Communication, Shambhala Press 2021. I'm really excited for you to hear this potent and poignant conversation about the power and potential of teaching yoga. So let's jump right in and I'll see you on the other side. Judith, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to share a bit of your story and some of your wisdom. I know that you have been teaching for a really long time. In fact, Relax and Renew was one of the assigned books at my very first teacher training. So I've been aware of your work for a really long time, and I'm excited to get the opportunity to have this conversation today. Do thank you so much for having me. I, there's nothing better I like to do than hang out with yogis and yoginis and talk about yoga and our personal journey in ways that m- maybe might uh, spark some something in someone or be of help to others. So I appreciate that you do that on a regular basis and I'm happy to be part of it. Yeah, it's my favorite thing too. So I would love to hear about how you first started practicing yoga. Who was your first teacher and what were the classes like? Well, it's kind of a, to me at least, fascinating story. I call it the most important right turn in my life. I was graduate student and I had been a teaching assistant and I was I, I wasn't enjoying the teaching because the students just wanted to know how to get an A and they didn't seem to be so curious and excited about it. And so I was going to get a part, I wanted a part-time job and I was walking down the street, you know, every university has that street right, right by it where they have all the coffee shops and bookstores. And, and there was a student Y there and I would never been in that building and I was walking by it. It actually felt like this I mean, I didn't have the words for it then, but this energy just swooped into my belly, into my center, into my heart, into my diaphragm and just literally pulled me, I turned right and just pulled me in there. And I walked up to the the desk and there was a people sitting behind it working. And I said, I'm graduate student across the street and I'm looking for a part-time job starting in September. This was probably April. They all stopped what they were doing and looked at me. And one of them came up and said, how did you know? I said, know what? 
we just had a staff meeting and wanted to hire a program associate part-time starting in September. Well, that's not the end of the story. The story is they had just started about that time having a yoga program. And as a staff member, I could take the classes free. So I'd been a dancer and I'd had some arthritic symptoms arising in me. And I thought, oh yeah, this, that sounds like exactly, I didn't know anything about it, but I knew that that's what I needed to do. So I took my first class and my life changed forever. I got up the next morning. I did what I remembered. And in 10 months, when my teacher left, she was teaching me in the Shivananda tradition. When my teacher left, she asked me to take over a 200 students a week yoga program, which I was totally confident in doing because I had been practicing for 10 months. No teacher training, nothing, but I knew everything. I was 24 years old. I jumped in with both feet. When I actually walked into my first class and all the students, we, in those days, everyone wore these baggy white cotton yoga pants and used these little rugs, which I have hanging up in my office. Still the first one I ever taught my first class on. Anyway, so I sat down on my little rug in my white cotton yoga pants. They were all lying on the floor on our 25 people or something. And all of a sudden, Mado. I panicked. OMG. I didn't say that because we didn't say OMG in those days, but that was the feeling. What have I done? And I seriously contemplated getting up and sneaking out. But I then I had the thought, okay, what have I been trained to do when I feel upset, agitated? Ah, breathing. So I closed my eyes, sitting on my mat, half lotus began to take several long breaths. And then I had the intense pricklies up over your scalp feeling, which I always get when I tell this story, which I'm getting right now, of my teacher standing behind me and then her teacher behind her and quickly turning into a line of Indian men going off behind my right shoulder in a diagonal line into infinity. And here's what I took from that. The teaching comes through me, not from me. They were all handing in my image a bucket of water forward to me. And I got it. I'm not the water. I'm, I'm the bucket. So it's coming from, through me, not from me. And all my fear dissipated and I never was nervous again because it wasn't me. It was, it was this tradition, this teaching that I was having the great and profound privilege to hand the bucket to others. That's amazing that you got that message so early on. I feel like for so many of us, it just takes us years and years and years to realize that we're vessels and not, you know, the product. Well, this was, this was my Dharma and this is what I was supposed to be doing. And when I look back, I'm sure this is true for you and for many, many, if not all of our listeners. When I look backward in my life, I see choices that I made that were gently 
nudging me in this direction. From a very young age, my proclivities, what I wanted to read, what I thought about, what I loved, it was all sort of coming together slowly. The cake was being mixed. So when I walked into my first class, what drew me in was I, I grew up in the South and I went to church on Sunday and I taught vacation Bible school and I was very, I was very involved in, in my church. And I noticed that you could work for God, you could give, help others, you could give money, but no one ever danced to God. And when I walked into my first yoga class and I started the movements and the breath and the whole environment, I went, thank God, someone knows that movement is sacred. Someone knows that movement can be a prayer. So from the very beginning, that's my orientation. It was just so grateful for all those things that created that path for me. I would love to hear about how your teaching has changed since then, since that first class? Well, thankfully it has. <laughs> like we all feel that way. I actually still have a student who uh, occasionally studies with me when I go into that part of the country, which I do usually once a year or something. And I often teach a little one, you know, one workshop or something. And she used to study with me then. So maybe she would be a better witness before the jury to uh, explain it. But I, I started, I was introduced, I was taught the Shivananda method. And then that very first fall that I was teaching, this is another, another whole con amazing coincidence, you know, quote unquote coincidence. But I, I don't want to go there now. I just want to tell you that I was introduced to the Eingar method um, by having several private classes, two to three hours long, one-on-one -on -one with one of his senior students. That's because no one else showed up to the class. But anyway, and that was so astounded me, this alignment and in the way the awareness was embodied. Um, but I kept teaching what I was teaching and I didn't teach it. I just tried to practice it. And then one day, like two years later, I walked into my yoga class. I turned up the lights and say, everybody stand up. We're going to do this pose called Trikonasana. <laughs> Half my students quit. There's so many styles of yoga and they're, they all offer something and we can change in our lives and people need, have different needs. And anyway, so I, uh, and then I, I had one of my students had given me his book. Uh, and I, I looked at those poses. Of course, I didn't read it. I turned to the back, see the poses. And I just thought, no, you know, let me try those poses. And then I realized, well, nobody can really do these poses. Anyway, so I had the chance to study with him about that time. And this was a path for me for many years. And uh, I went to physical therapy school and I really began to understand the power of alignment. So when I first started teaching, especially in that method, I believed my job was to give people a lot of information about the poses. And then 
over time, I evolved and I began to see that it had a mental aspect of reminding us of our internal stillness. And then I went through stages of, of seeing the poses as Jungian archetype projection of our unconscious or my psychological stage. And then I went through this sort of poetic stage just when I wrote a lot of my poems and I, and I began to understand that all the words I spoke, that words were just shadows of reality. And then I kind of segued into what I call my mystic stage, which I think I'm sort of in now of that yoga practice, not just asana now, but the broadest practice of yoga is about two things. It's about letting go of the illusion that we are our thoughts, number one. And it's about becoming radically present to the absolute truth of our higher self and to recognize that not only in ourself, but in every other human being. I have a saying that I tell my teachers when I'm training them is that my job as a yoga teacher is to reflect back the inherent goodness and inner wisdom of the student. That is a privilege, not a right. And, but first I have to find that in myself. So that's sort of where I am now. I love that. It's such a gift of the role of the teacher to have that reminder and that, that mission to see the highest in each person that comes in front of us. This first class I ta- uh, took with BKS Anger, he went through the body and wove in all the yogas. Like he said, you know, your feet are bhakti yogis giving devotion to the earth, your heart, you know, your legs are karma yogis holding you upright in this posture. And, and of course, I don't remember it because it was the first thing he ever said, I ever heard him say, but I feel that teaching yoga is a form of bhakti. It's a form of devotional service, whatever, whether it's philosophy or, you know, asana or pranayama. And to step on the mat every day and sit on the cushion every day is an act of devotion and gratitude and humility. What a gift. Yeah, it is. So let me, can I, can I read you this quote from me about Diyasana? Of course, I would love that. Thank you. Eventually, the integrity of the asana becomes vibrant without effort. It becomes clear without struggle, and thus it becomes a seat of refuge. Then we experience a quietness that spontaneously arises. 
So I think that all the practices of yoga, yama, niyama, asana, pranayama, pratyahara, dharna, dhyana, and samadhi are inextricably interwoven. And this first sort of came to me deeply when I began to, I've always studied the sutra from, I love studying Patanjali and other sutra. is that the yamas and the niyamas are taught as proscriptions, like what you should do. But I, I have, in my little way, have flipped that. And I now think of the yama niyama, like ahimsa, steya, brahmacharya, all of that yama niyama. I think of them as descriptive that this is what an integrated person does they don't steal they don't lie and they have a, a care of the seat that's what asana means uh, of of the body they they are aware of the fact that the breath is divinity entering us and leaving us at every moment that they understand the fascination of the external world, but they can step back and see the humanness in that without judging it, Pratyahara, and so forth. So I think for me, I'm continually learning the same lesson that my practice is too small. My yoga is too small. And as my heart opens, my belly opens, my mind quiets down. There is less and less time in which I'm not doing yoga. Even when I'm sitting talking to you, paying slight attention to my body, staying present in my belly. I love this because it connects so beautifully back to the essence of remembering the wholeness that we are. So it's like this reframe of yama and niyama meshes so perfectly with that essential teaching that no, you're already whole, you're already divine. And when you're in touch with that, this is what your life will look like. It will look like yama and niyama. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I really have been through stages where I just was pulling very strongly in the opposite direction. And I see this a lot in the yoga world that it's almost like the asana has become a punishment for some of us. You know, I, I went through a period of anorexia and I was born with a flexible body and I was always pushing it further. And I always felt like I hadn't done enough yoga asana or I hadn't done enough meditation. And I think that that came from a deeply embedded belief that I wasn't enough. It wasn't that my asana wasn't enough. I wasn't enough. Or that my asana wasn't good enough. 
was I wasn't good enough. And I was using the techniques of yoga to make myself acceptable to myself. This is why yoga is so radical in the culture we live in. Say more about that. Well, the core teaching of yoga of enoughness is at odds with all the messages we're getting from our culture about not being enough unless we achieve, we do, we create. But yoga says, no, you're enough already, get in touch with that and then the creation will arise. I agree with you 100%, but what I tend to see is that people say that, but then they go to their yoga class and they push themselves or the teacher saying more, more, more. I mean, because Iyengar used to say today's maximum is tomorrow's minimum. And, you know, I, I, over the years, I greatly honor the gift that he's given me and, and the gift that he's given to the world of yoga. But I, I've moved away from that approach. I think you're absolutely right. And what I think that there's a disconnect there between what we know with our heads and what we can embody. So even people who say you're enough at your essence, well, that's not necessarily something we're living all day, every day. I mean, that's, that's one of the big themes of my podcast and of my life is that we're just showing up the best we can. And sometimes we forget <laughs> like that forgetting yeah, like every other millisecond. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, you know, like a yoga teacher who says in their class, you're enough. And then, you know, maybe still pushes. They're saying what they know they need to hear. It's like, they're on the right track. They're just not there yet. I don't know if you've seen my book, a year of living your yoga, but it's this little uh, quote for every day and a practice for every day of the year. I give what I call mantras of daily living and a mantra, the word mantra comes from manas mind, which is basic sense of mind and try to transcend. So a mantra is something that helps us transcend our ordinary way of thinking. So the mantra of daily living that I really like in this context is how human of me. Yeah. It's giving empathy to the self and the way that I like to bring this concept in, into my teaching is I don't tell people they're doing the pose wrong. Because if you, if you say that's wrong, don't do it that way, do it this way. I'm right, you're wrong. Even if it's somewhat subtle, you're wrong. So what that does is it puts, number one, it doesn't teach anybody anything. It's like saying to a kid running by the side of the pool, don't run. That does not teach the kid anything. If you say, please walk, that tells the child what you want them to do. So I will say to people, I'm wondering if that pose feels really good on your knee right now, which, or would you be willing to turn your knee out a little bit more? I think you might like it. Or I'd like to show you something that I think might help you enjoy your pose better. This is why I like it. I like it this way. Try it. Tell me how it feels to you. You know, because to me, teaching an asana class, the asanas are questions, not answers. It's not that I have the answer that I'm trying to fit with my words and my 
touch, and I always ask permission to touch. I believe deeply in mutuality that I'm not trying to fit them in a cookie cutter shape. What I want, what I want to do is offer them another way of being in their body and see, let them choose because it is, they live there. Nobody knows it like them. I want to offer them another way of being in the world that they may choose because it with choice comes power and freedom and presence. It must be a choice. Mahatma Gandhi talked about being a child and sneaking off behind the barn metaphorically and eating meat with his friends. I mean, he wanted to, to break away from the rules. And so if we tell people they're doing it wrong, we don't teach them anything and we don't, we don't trust them. We show them we don't trust them. We show them that we're, we know more than they. Now, I, know, I probably know more about yoga in my classes than some of the people in there. But they know more about art history or engineering or, I mean, so I want my language to reflect. This is in, in shorthand. This is my experience. I would like offer the possibility of this experience to you. Would you be willing to try it? Yeah. And I think that, you know, that's one of the strides that the culture of yoga has made really in the last decade. I've seen so much more of that invitational language and that letting go of the need for the teacher to be an authority figure. Yeah. I know it's not everywhere, but it, that has grown so much. That's really good because I'm sure trying to spread that. <laughs> you have some advice for teachers about what they should do right before they teach. Would you like to share that now? Sure. When I go in to teach a class, I did it before this session, but when I go in to teach a class and I sit down on my mat, I always, we, I ring the bell, my bells, and by the way, I found this out a long time ago, sidetrack slightly. I have bells that I oh, spent like an hour in Pune, India, picking the ones that resonated the way I liked the best. And I found that if you're teaching in a context where the context does not support any quote unquote spiritual stuff, you, you can use the English words. You don't have to say Sanskrit words. You don't have to say we're meditating. You can say we're just going to sit down and be quiet for a moment and settle. And then if you ring the bells, bells are in our unconscious, our collective unconscious, I believe, associated with spirituality. They've been used since time began. And so if you just ring these bells quietly, you don't have to say anything about them. Just ring them. People get it. You know, they get it. All right. So I... I ring my bells and we sit sometimes for a minute, sometimes for a minute and a half. It's not long. It's just a ritual of disconnection from what their day was before they stepped into the yoga studio. You know, a way of moving away from the outer world symbolically to being present with the internal world. And while that's, we're sitting there, what I, 
what I do is I check in with myself and I say to myself, what's going on with me right now? What am I feeling right now? Excited, bored, angry, happy, tired, worried. It does not matter what the answer is that comes up from my belly. And I go, ah, that's what's alive in me right now. Okay. Because if I don't know what's going on with me, I'm going to be hamstrung figuring out what's going on with you and being present with you. If I'm not present with me, there is no way I can be present with you. So the second step is to try, when I look at the student, to try to see them with soft eyes, to see them with my heart, to, to really see them. And this is why it's so much easier to fly off and teach a workshop somewhere else where you've never, you don't know the people because it's harder and harder with the people who've been coming 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40 years to your classes because you know everything about them. You knew them before they met their husband, before they had kids, before they got divorced, before their son had you know, triplets. I mean, you, you just start knowing these things about them, right? So it's harder to see them, but to see them with soft eyes and to teach people first and asana second. And then the third most important thing is to give them instruction in the poses. And I used to think it was absolutely the other way around, that my job was to give you information about the pose and put you through your paces. And it was the last thing was to pay attention to what it was alive in me as if in some way I was separate from the moment. So scientists have done experiments where they find that merely the presence of the scientist in the room affects the outcome of the experiment. So who I bring to the teaching mat shapes my students' experience. And so I'm, I'm not saying that if I feel a little irritated because I got, just got a parking ticket or something, that I should make myself feel differently, but actually what really happens is I don't have to, because once I acknowledge, ah, right now I'm just feeling irritated. How human of me, inhale, exhale, it dissolves itself. So that's what I do every time I teach. I love it. Do you think it's a inevitable phase to go through that phase of feeling like you need to be instructing and that that's your job because it's so universal that orientation towards being the leader and knowing what to say versus showing up and watching. Why do you think that's so prevalent? I think it's very human because we, we really can't, information is so much easier to convey in a teacher training program. Here's, I mean, I'm Pitta Dosha and you know how you're, if you're Pitta Dosha in Ayurveda, because you have a list, like I always have a list, right? You have a list? Oh yes. Oh yes. Constant. <laughs> I even have in my file cabinet, not three feet from me, someone once gave me a Buddhist friend of mine, gave me a list and I am not making this up 
a list of the Buddhist list. Like there's three lists of three. There's two lists of four. It's a list of the list. And I have it printed out, stapled in a folder named list of lists. So (laughs) (laughs) So it's so much easier to give, to teach people information. An analogy I'll make is, is I love anatomy, but, and I teach it. I even have a course called experiential anatomy with my daughter and with Mary Richards, but but what I really want to teach people is not anatomy, it's kinesiology, because anatomy is like learning the letters, and kinesiology is learning the words, and therapeutics is writing sentences. Or another way to think of it is, is anatomy is the instruments of the orchestra, but how do they play together? And how, what happens when you take your arm out to the side and all the way up? It's not just knowing this is the humorous, this is the radius, this is the ulna. I mean, that's not enough. So information is useful, but not sufficient. I think where, but I understand why it's, you know, I mean, I teach classes that's about, about information and I'm very clear about and talk about this openly. What I would like to see more of in teacher trainings is more, does, more training on pedagogy. Like what does it really mean to be a teacher? What, what is my role as a teacher? Um, what is going to be my, the first, the most important thing I think to figure out is not what am I gonna teach, but what is gonna be my relationship with my students? How, what is the quality of that relationship going to be? And the second part of what I think we need more of is helping young teachers learn to do this, which I, I teach this mantra in every class I teach practically. Trust yourself first. And I make everyone say it out loud three times like we're in the second grade and they all roll their eyes at me. And trust yourself first. And I, then I tell them, Notice I did not say, trust yourself only. Mm. But I believe that when I walk into that class, this is not BKS Iyengar's class. It's not Madeau's class. It's not my teacher's class. It's no one's class. It's my class. And when I step on the mat in humility and gratitude, I want to stand in my own light and teach from my own experience of yoga. Now I may be reinventing the wheel, which I know I am. I'm, I, everything I say to you today, someone else has already said, maybe not in these words, but there's, you know, when it comes from our own experience and we trust that, I mean, not that we're not constantly learning, I'm always reading and learning more about yoga, But when we teach from our own inner wisdom, what we have learned, what we've experienced, what we have integrated, an amazing thing begins to happen. To stand in our own light on the mat and to teach from that, from our heart and from our own experience, people no longer tell you, oh, that was a great class or great sequence or whatever they, you know, how students are so kind, they often say, oh, that was great or just what I needed. Or, you, ne- you stop hearing those things. And what you start hearing is, you changed my life. Because when we 
vibrate, when we radiate, when we are willing to expose our, tr our own connection with spirit, divinity, goddess, whatever word doesn't trigger you, that awakens it in the other person. And we don't train our teachers. We don't talk to them. We don't give them book. I think a teacher training books about the pedagogy of teaching. What does it mean to teach? Who am I going to be as a teacher? How do I? And, and where we just, because those things are hard and more nebulous. But to answer your question, that's what we need. What is challenging is to be able to stay connected like that amidst the pressures of life and every day. Yeah, that's what makes it so fun. <laughs> and, and I think that that's part of the, the pull of teaching is that there is an invitation, especially when you recognize that when you do this, you enable and invite your students to do it too. Yeah. There's this invitation that is in front of you versus if you're not teaching and let's say you have a job and you're a lawyer or you have a job and you work in a restaurant or whatever and the all the stuff coming at you is potentially a distraction <laughs> from that experience of really being present let's see that's why we call it yoga practice not yoga showing off <laughs> it's you know, or performing. I know it's hard to do this in daily life, but that's, that's the journey. And I believe that what we're, what you're talking about is refuge. And to me, refuge is not a location. It's not only on my meditation cushion or in my yoga room on my yoga. A refuge rather is, it's not a place because I can take, go to the most beautiful, there's one near San Francisco that was built with a lot of internet money. And it's just in the redwoods and it's absolutely beautiful and the food is exquisite and all the yoga props match. And it's, you know, it couldn't be any more perfect. So I could go to that place and still be miserable. So refuge it's not a location, it's an intention. And there is no one, no force great enough in the world to keep me from finding refuge whenever and wherever I want it. Let's do it right now. You're sitting up as I remember seeing you earlier. So can we try this very simple thing? Yes. So sitting now, Sit in front of your sitting bones so your normal curves are there. Drop your chin slightly. And I want you to imagine that your, your in attention is now moving from the, to the exact center of your brain, from the sides of your skull, from the top and the bottom, and from the front and the back. All of these lines of focus converge at the very center of your brain. Now you can slightly open your eyes and stay there. 
And if you really want to change your consciousness, completely release the root of your tongue. And there you are in a state of refuge. And you can be at a meeting. You can be at a family gathering. You can be anywhere. Just go to the center of your brain. Did you feel it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And what happened when you released the root of the tongue? Anything? Ease. It just went, it just went deeper. It's really, a, I'm so excited about this idea. It releasing the root of the tongue really releases the dominance of thought. That's my experience of it. And the reason is there's a neurological reason because your, your, your verbal, the verbal part of your brain is, has a very intimate relationship with your tongue because of talking, thinking, hopefully when people talk, they're thinking oftentimes not as we notice in public life is the definition of politician is someone whose mouth is working, no longer connected to his brain. But <laughs> when I, when I release the root of my tongue, thought it does not have the same power and grip over my consciousness. So there's this, this neurological connection between talking, speaking, writing, thinking. And if you've ever seen a little kid, or maybe it was you, or you can remember seeing this in first grade or something, when a child often is learning how to write, you see their tongue outside their mouth making the shape of the letters because your tongue makes micro movements when you think. Wow. I know, isn't that fascinating? Yeah. So, but you use this for a while. I'd love to hear how it works for you. And I hope our listeners will try it. I, I use it all the time just go to the center of my brain. And that's choosing the intention of refuge. Yeah. In any moment. So this would be a great moment for you to share about your new book. Ooh. I love writing books and I wrote one during the last pandemic year. And the title is Teaching Yoga with Intention. The Essential Guide. I did not write The Essential Guide. I just want to tell you, I don't have that level of hubris. The Essential Guide to Skillful Hands-On Assists and Verbal Communication. And what this book is about is how our greatest tool as yoga teachers is, is our words. Because our word, my words reflect my thoughts. My thoughts reflect my beliefs and my beliefs run my life. And so when, if I want to be a little less under the power of my belief, because it's just a belief, it's not reality. It's just my belief. It may have some threads of reality woven in it, but it's not reality. So it's how do we ask people to do things? How do we use words? How, how can we use words in a way that, is, that shows empathy with ourselves, empathy with the other? How can we use our words in a way to create connection? And so that's the first part of the book. And then the second part of the book, I mean, there's several sections in these parts, but it's about touching. Do we touch people? Why, why not? What is the effect of touch? Um, I, I use touch in my teaching 
but I always, every time, no matter if you've been in my class for 25 years, I always ask permission. And I have a lot of teaching in that part about, then there's a technique, some simple techniques of where you never touch, what, what the legality of touch is, like all of that and how it can help people find their own pose. I'll give you a little example. Let's say you're doing Marichiasana three or C. So that's the twist where you're sitting one leg bent and you're turning toward the leg. All right, so you're, if I walk up to you and I've seen teachers do this from the back, I've seen teachers walk up with, with no preparation or no permission or no connecting with themselves or the student, put their hands on the shoulders and twist the person further. What I, 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 don't, I don't like that. I don't like that being done to me. Therefore, I do not do that to others. And so I, if I wanted to offer you a new way of being in the pose, I might come up and say, I'm behind you now, so you can't see me. And I would say quietly, I'd like to put my hands lightly on your shoulder blades, may I? You would say, if you say yes or no. If you say no, I say namaste and I walk away. So if you say yes, then I put my hand lightly or one hand probably would be better. You're twisting to the right. So I might put my left hand just lightly, but not too lightly, just so you can clearly, so it's not ambiguous, but there's no force. I just put my hand, rest it on your left shoulder blade. And I say, inhale the breath. Now exhale and move away from my hand. So the, the movement is initiated through the phenomenally complicated, fantastically aware nervous neuromuscular system of the other person. They create the movement in themselves. So I talk a lot about all of that. And then there's a two page, two, maybe two and a half page uh, section at the back which is a final word to teachers, which I personally believe is the best thing I ever wrote. And I say that because I'm the happiest with that than any other two and a, two and a half pages I've ever in. And it's coming out in October and I'm very excited about this book. It sounds wonderful. It sounds, would you say that it touches on a lot of those themes of pedagogy that you were referring to earlier? 100%. Great, I think it's very needed. I'm excited to get to check it out. Thank you. Well, I will definitely get you a copy. So I would like, as we approach the, the end, uh, as I said, I write poems. And one day when I was doing my practice, this whole, this concept of sweet, of sweet body came to me. And so I'd like to read you a short poem, sweet body, Sweet, soft body that carries my radiant soul, I do not thank you enough. I do not enjoy you enough. I do not cherish you enough. More and more now, I feel an upwelling of gratitude for all you have given me. For the ability to dance, to laugh, to weep, and to inwardly soar with the beauty of this world. For three babies, plump, and juicy and full of spontaneous joy and curiosity for this miraculous life. For a heart that has been both broken and mended more than once. For the delicious taste of love. 
for the many chances I have had to make mistakes and then try to learn from them. Dear body, you are the true companion of my life, the vessel of my wonder, the holder of my felt intrinsic wisdom, container of my sacred self. Forgive me. Companion of my life. Yeah, exactly. So again, thank you so much for your own practice that helps to make this world a better place and for sharing your wisdom. And thank and- you. Same, same times a thousand. <laughs> What's the best way for listeners to find out more about you? They can go to Lassiter, L-A-S-A-T-E-R dot yoga. I have my website there, my courses, everything. Lassiter.yoga. Yeah. Okay, perfect. So may we live like the lotus at home in the muddy water. Namaste. And sending love to you across the skies. And back to you, Judith. Thank you. As you were listening, I really hope that you felt like you were in the room with Judith and I, although we were talking over Zoom, and that you got the same call to presence that I experienced during that conversation. There's not a lot to add to all the wisdom that Judith shared, and since this episode's already on the longer side, I'll keep this outro short. I did love how Judith provided several practices for us to take on, that check-in before we teach, and the focus on coming to the center of the brain and relaxing the root of the tongue as a quick way to arrive in presence throughout the day. If you incorporate either of those practices into your life, I'd love to hear your experience. You can email madoateachingyoga.net or find me on Instagram at yoga.teacher.resource. Before I let you go, check in with yourself about your personal practice. Are you committed to setting aside time out of your day to feed your ability to be present as the rest of your life comes at you? Does the current structure of what you're doing feel nourishing and sustainable? If you feel happy with the state of your practice, take a moment to savor how that feels. If there's something you want to change about your practice, feel into your level of commitment to making that change, because that's going to be really important for your ability to actually take action on it. Once you're connected to the fire, the tapas, the desire to make that change, then jot down a quick note about what's the first step you can take in that direction. That's all for today. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for caring enough to teach yoga.